Stay tuned for the Big Daddy Liberty Show on 101.9 High FM. Molo Sambonani, hello, how's it? Welcome to the Big Daddy Liberty Show. It is a Friday, which means you know it's going to be a favorite fat boy on your airwaves, and we're going to have a chat about the top news that I've made the week. And um, yeah, I always have a fun chat with a special guest. Guys, welcome to it. It is a wonderful Friday. And uh, Shabbat Shalom to those who are observant. Um, guys, I, I've had a very interesting and turbulent week as I watch the, the different groupings um, reassert their, their social power, reassert and reclaim their constitutional rights, if you will. And we're going to have that conversation today. Because as I mentioned in last week's show, the, the past week was going to be defined by the court cases being brought against the state. And I think that is the central theme of today's show, is what has the pushback looked like? Uh, how has it benefited you? Has it fought for your rights? Has it fought for your freedoms? Has it fought for your liberty? So we're going to have that conversation. Um, as always on the show, in the first 10 minutes, we look at the news headlines that made the week. What was the topical stuff? What was interesting? What got you talking? Um, you know, what what, um, what what was on the conversations around your dinner tables at home? So we'll do that uh, just after this first break. And then um, just after 20 minutes past nine, I'm going to have two very, in- very interesting guests for you who have just recently put out a, a position paper. Um, from the Institute of Race Relations, that's Dr. Anthea Jeffrey, uh, who's the head of policy uh, re- and research at the IRR, and of course, uh, Mr. Herman Pretorius, also from the IRR. Again, they're going to talk to us about why they put this paper out, why it was important, and exactly what action um, they're going to take against the state, since that's what they announced this week they would be looking to do. So I'm going to take a very, very quick break. And then after the break, let's have a chat about what exactly made the headlines in the uh, in the last week. You are listening to the Big Daddy Liberty Show. Guys, welcome back to the Big Daddy Liberty Show. It is another week with your favorite track boy, Moi, Big Daddy Liberty. Welcome to it. As always, as I mentioned, the show always begins by looking at the news headlines that were. Um, what got you talking this week? And um, what piqued your interest? Now, if you watched my show on my YouTube channel uh, on Wednesday, you'll know exactly what had me interested and what had me laughing, if anything, this week. And that is really... And I'll begin here for, for the benefit of the show is, you know, the hypocrisy. I mean, uh, our police minister, Billy Kleine, uh was essentially busted by the media that his department had called out to do an event. Uh, busted visiting a, another minister's house in Peter Maritzburg. Again, flouting and breaking the very rules that he is tasked with enforcing. The same rules that he has a police force out on the streets um, a, 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 an SANDF, an army that are also out on the streets, uh, and as we've seen in the past weeks, has been at times brutally enforcing on ordinary people. Again, it made me think of a George Orwell's quote, the idea that some pigs from animal farm, some pigs are just equal, more equal than others. And it seems as though with, with Peggy Taylor and how he dismissed, um, you know, he, he dismissed these 
queries on the media then put it to him that, you know, are you not being a little hypocritical here? Like, how, how is it possible that you, uh, can go visit, you know, the home of, um, Minister Dr. Blade and Zimande and, and you don't even bat an eyelid uh, when, when <laughs> the hypocrisy is put to you. Again, it's these little moments. It's these little, as I like to call them, clown world moments that erode the public's trust of what the state says is, is required at a time like this in a so-called pandemic. It's these moments that erode that trust. Because how is it possible that you can have, especially, I mean, especially if you're a resident of, of, of a township in South Africa, if you're a resident of a township, you have seen the, 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 the greatest brutality from the state during this time of COVID. You have been, you've borne the brunt of it. You're the one who's seen the soldiers march up and down the streets. You're the one who's seen police officers carrying shambox and beating people up. Again, what I'm mentioning is actual documented facts. The investigative police, um, uh, the independent, excuse me, police investigative director, IPED, the watchdog of the police, is currently inundated with cases. Inundated with cases, cases of police brutality, deaths within custody, etc., etc. So it's actually quite a serious thing when, when you then have the head, of, the political head of the police, at least, himself, just flouting the rules. It's food for thought, guys. It's food for thought. Because again, it speaks to us around, are we taking COVID as seriously as we should as a public health crisis? Or is it becoming an avenue for politicians who might have ulterior motives to, to put in place the sort of things that they've always wanted, which is perhaps to build an authoritarian, secure state? These are questions citizens should actually ask themselves. It's a valid question. Because you live in a democracy. This republic was built on the idea that it accords every individual. And really, I speak a lot about the individual as a classical liberal, but really we're a family society. And that this republic, therefore, accords rights and freedoms to families. The the power of the state should always be tempered with that being the most important thing, i.e. families and, and, and individuals. So that all state decisions, like the Gauteng government's Department of Education, now deciding to roll out what they call these COVID brigades. I mean, listen to the language. Listen to the language. COVID brigades rolling those out to schools across the country. What exactly will there all be outside of the, the the regulated structures that currently exist in our schools, which are also accountable because they place parents by and large to be responsible for schools by way of school governing bodies, for instance. What are these COVID brigades? Why are there an additional layer of state bureaucracy in schools? The claim, of course, is, oh, no, they'll be there to do things like testing and, you know, uh, temperature monitoring and all these things. And, quote, unquote, they're going to be trained, as the department says. But why is that you already have an entire public health system that is meant to do exactly that. And now you're, you're bringing on largely, I mean, with all due respect, unskilled people who you're going to train. Train them in what? Are you going to train them as nurses? Are you going to train them as doctors? And if that is the case, why are they called a COVID brigade? Like, who are you going to war with? Because it can't be the virus. The virus, we now know, the data is absolutely crystal clear, that it doesn't affect um, adversely, I mean, obviously it affects them in so far as it's a virus, it, it, anyone can catch it. But 
children are not in the risk group of this virus. In terms of the high and, and elevated rate of death, at least, the mortality rates, children are just not in that group. Hence, for instance, when the Minister of Health, uh, excuse me, Education, National Minister of Education announced that schools are reopening on the 1st of June, uh, a decision that uh, Andrew Motsefa, the minister, said was approved by both Cabinet and the NCCC, the National Coronavirus Command Council. Um, you know, a lot of people are in support, and yes, don't get me wrong, there are other people who are concerned. But again, I looked at this in the context of the data. I think she's quite right to open the schools again. Because this virus is not killing children around the world. It's killing mostly, and unfortunately, the elderly, and really um, older people with, with severe comorbidities. You know, people like have uh, obesity, hypertension, diabetes, uh, maybe respiratory illnesses, chronic respiratory illnesses. But even then, it's not killing those people as a de facto. They're just at a higher elevated risk. So at some point, we, we need to allow the data, we need to allow the, the evidence to do the talking. We need to allow the science to lead us in our responses to things. And not the hysteria. Because that's what we've... And, and take a moment and listen to what I'm saying here. Think about the sort of news coverage you've been reading. Think about the sort of radio that you sometimes may have been hearing. It's all been driven by hysteria. I mean, right now, as we speak, Minister Dr. Zerlin Kiza, the, the Minister of Health, is defending his department's um, latest projections on COVID-19 infections because, uh, again, smart the smart types, you know, the, 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 the numbers buffers, have looked at this and said, I'm sorry, this doesn't support and isn't supported, rather, by the evidence. In fact, the minister had to sort of, uh, you know, backtrack and say, look, uh, this has been an unfolding pandemic, which everyone has been learning about over the past few months, and no one has answers to. But that's not entirely true, because the evidence is now coming out, and it has been for a really long time. Like hard evidence, suggesting, for example, that this disease is really perhaps even more pervasive in society. I mean, there have been studies done in America and Italy in um, Spain, I think, but that last one is under, under correction where, you know, they, they tested for antibodies. In other words, the the the, um, the antibodies that respond to, to COVID, and they found a greater prevalence rate, which suggests that a lot of people have really had COVID, but maybe didn't even know it because they were asymptomatic, or or they would have had, excuse me, they would have had mild flu symptoms um, and, and never have thought, you know, that this is something called COVID. They just said, oh, maybe I have a bit of flu. Food for thought, people. Food for thought. Um, I was going to go into other things, but I need to take my next break. And remember, after the ad break, when I come back, I'm going to have Dr. Anthea Jeffrey from the Institute of Race Relations and Herman Pretorius to talk to us about their latest report, which looks at the lockdown and some of the, the anti-liberty and anti-rights side of it and argues that is the lockdown even a necessary tool? Anyway, that conversation after the break. This is the Big Daddy Liberty Show. Guys, welcome back to the BDL Show every Friday here on High FM. And of course, simulcast on my podcast uh, avenues. And I'll be putting it out as a podcast. So you can look forward to that uh, a little later if you miss the conversation. I am in conversation now, as I mentioned before the break, with Dr. Anthea Jeffrey from, and, uh, Herman Pretorius, excuse me, from the Institute of Race Relations. I do not have much time with them, and there's so much I 
that I need to unpack with them. So let me just quickly welcome my guests, Anthea and Herman. Welcome. Good morning. Thank you. Good morning to you and all your listeners. Good morning, everyone. How are you? Very, very Excellent. Um, I'm going to hop straight into it because you put out and. Again, the IRR has been super, super busy um, over the last sort of, um, well, really since the lockdown began, um, as a, a acting rightly as an, a watchdog, a civil society watchdog, um, to what we've seen unroll um, by the state. I know you guys have launched a campaign recently, um, had about our beginning with you actually in this one, so far as uh, even mentioning... I mean, you wrote a letter to the presidency uh, this week, mentioning you know the possibility of joining court action against the state. Can you just quickly talk to me about that? Yes, um, our primary concern is that uh, South Africa is, is is going through a crisis, essentially two crises at the same time. We have on the one side the pandemic that is, of course. Serious, and we need to do everything we can to, within you know the proper understanding of the realities, protect lives against the virus. But on the other side, we need to be aware of this great other evil, this great killer, poverty. Now, poverty kills more people than any other disease in the world, and our concern is that the unconstitutionality, the illegal usage and abuse of power by the government since the start of this lockdown, has really put lives and livelihoods at risk. And primarily, we're now starting to see the focus shift from the crisis of the pandemic to the crisis of poverty. And the IRR's position is very clear. We enter into litigation very, very rarely and very, very hesitantly. But when the stakes are high, when lives are literally on the line and we think we can make a contribution, we will step into the role of a litigant or a friend of the court to make sure that South Africans get the best case for their liberty put in front of the judiciary. And we've told the president, Mr. President, sir, you're on the wrong side of the law. You are in a crisis of your own making in terms of litigation. Please backtrack, see sense, avoid these unnecessary court cases so that we all can focus on getting this economy going again. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and the funny thing is, I, you know, I had this conversation on the show um, in, in one of the vlogs at the end, it was vlog 26, I'm not sure, where I said there's nothing more dangerous than a politician, especially one who pines for power like, of the authoritarian type. There's nothing more dangerous than that politician not being able to admit when they're wrong and not being able to admit or rather backtrack on a bad decision. And then let me bring you in because... You penned this beautiful report. It is available on the IRR website. Just search under reports slash uh, occasional reports. And the report itself is called Keeping Liberty Alive uh, Through COVID-19 and Beyond. Um, and, there, you know, this report highlights the risks um, of political rights and economic freedoms being eroded, um, you know, when through measures that are purportedly to deal with the consequences of this COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and you mentioned a lot of, you know, things that are, that create the importance for society to, to resist such erosion of rights and freedoms. Um, I, I must put it to you quite straight, you know, is this crisis one of lives, uh, versus making money as, you know, we've seen being, uh, played out in the media, for example, that, oh, if you, if you, if you don't care about lives and you only care about money, um, you know, then, then you're part of the evil brigade of South Africans who just aren't taking COVID seriously. But is that, is that really the case? Not at all. 
the key issue, as, as Herman was indicating, is that what we face is the real risk of lives being lost not only to COVID, but also lives being lost to all the diseases of poverty, such as tuberculosis, diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, cancer, etc. And we believe, based on the data that we've seen, that there's a real risk that those non-COVID deaths are going to far exceed the COVID deaths that even the government is modelling. And so we're really saying we have to step back. We have to recognise that the lockdown is putting lives at risk through non-COVID fatalities, as well as a huge amount of suffering that will arise when people are too poor to afford food. Um, Dr. Glenda Gray spoke about uh, cases of malnutrition appearing at, at Barabwanath Hospital, Kwasthani Barabwanath Hospital in early May this year, and, and said this isn't something that's been seen for decades, and yet it's now coming up. Other doctors have warned that there's been a between 40 and 60% decline in the proportion of HIV people going to get their medication from clinics. And they think that the same could be true in other spheres where they're chronic diseases. So it's not lies versus profits, it's lies versus lives, with the real risk that it's more non-COVID deaths than COVID ones that are an issue. Mm. And, and that frightens me. The, the prospect of that frightens me. I mean, we discussed this last week on the show with uh, then guest Mubiake Khamini from the Free Market Foundation, and he raised the specter also, the idea that you could be very well be seeing people who ordinarily go to hospital for various chronic illnesses um, in this country just avoiding these places now because of the fear-mongering also that has come out on the issue of, of the COVID. Um, Herman, I want to come to you, maybe just on the, the gist of the same question of, you know, is, is caring about, is it a, a one versus the other scenario? Um, you, you really have had the rhetoric being driven in society, partially aided by government, of course, that, you know, if you don't listen to us, if you don't, quote, shut up and obey, essentially, uh, worse yet, if you are talking about, you know, the economy and profits and, and, and super profits of white monopoly capital at this time, then you just do not care about lives. Um, but there seems mm. to be a missing part of the conversation around poor people who are dependent on that economy saying, but you haven't taken us into consideration. We need to make that quote-unquote evil profit daily just to put bread mm. on the table. Yeah, my my response to people saying, you know, you only care about the economy, uh, you don't care about people, is always, what do you think the economy is? Do you think the economy is a bunch of numbers that a few think tank employees and a few uh, rich capitalists get excited if they see the numbers ticking in the right direction? No. The economy, every time someone speaks about the economy, Search and replace the word economy with the ability of people to eat or the ability of people to look after their loved ones. Then it starts becoming very clear what the economy is and why people need to participate in the economy. We have seen um, very from, from the start of this, the IRR's analysis has been that if the social isolation protocols, you know, the lockdown, if these things don't work, it will be because of socioeconomic push pressures or factors that pushed vulnerable poor people into saying, I have to take a risk. I'm facing either staying at home, quote, safe from the virus, but starving, or I go out, 
uh, risking my chance of getting this virus, but at least earning something to bring back home to feed to my kids, to feed to my loved ones, to feed to elderly people. We know there are many multi-generational homes in South Africa. To feed to the mm. elderly people in my household who um, are in fact also vulnerable, very vulnerable, um, more vulnerable than others to this disease. If they can't eat, if the elderly loved ones of the people of South Africa can't be looked after, then they are vulnerable to poverty and the disease. So whenever someone comes to you and says, oh, you only care about the economy, stop them right there and ask them, when you say the economy, do you mean the abstract ticking over of numbers that interest a few weird people? Or are you talking about the ability of people to eat? Because that's what the economy is. Absolutely. And I must bring it to you and maybe ask the question directly. Are we being taught the truth? Um, I mean, I just mentioned the fact that you know, there is the shut up and obey tone being taken by, by certain interest groupings, uh, you know, the, the government obviously leading the charge and supported at times by an unquestioning and critical media, unfortunately. Are we being taught the truth about COVID-19 deaths? And I suppose a question linked to that is, therefore, has the lockdown even worked? Mm. Well, perhaps I can start with the last part of it and, and talk about what Professor Alex van den Heerfer has said. He's pointed out that the lockdown simply cannot work for the millions of people who live in, in, in seeming informal settlements and crowded township areas. And he says it's equivalent to no intervention at all for all those millions of people in terms of the virus, that is. It is, of course, a, a hugely damaging intervention in terms of what Herman was talking about, their capacity to earn a living and to put food on the table and take care of their families. So we are facing with a lockdown that, that cannot work. And yet it is, of course, effective in, in shutting down at the moment about 60% of the economy and making it enormously difficult for many people to keep on earning their livelihoods. And are we being told the truth? I think we're certainly not being given enough information. The government has refused until this week to disclose the modelling on which it's making its lockdown decisions. Uh, we were told a couple of weeks ago, not by the government, but by a, a professor, Shabir Madi at Fitz University, who perhaps broke ranks, to say that there was a model developed by Sakema at Stellenbosch University, which had predicted 351,000 deaths at the worst, and that had informed the initial lockdown decision. And that seems wildly exaggerated, as, as modeling data in other countries has also been wildly exaggerated, and that was the way Professor Madi spoke of it. Now, finally, we have a new model developed or made available to us, rather, which talks of between 40,000 and 48,000 deaths by November this year uh, and warns that the hospital system may become overwhelmed. But again, the, the, the reasoning underlying these figures has not been made clear. One has to be able to interrogate a model. What was the data that was fed into it? What were the assumptions on which it is based? How coherent is its internal logic? And none of that has been made clear. So it's very difficult for anybody to review that data. And again, to quote Professor Alex van den Heerfe, he said, we're really being kept in the dark here, and mm. the government is making decisions based on information that we can't evaluate. And that's simply not an acceptable situation when the risks to the entire country are so high that, that, that livelihoods are being destroyed, that the economy is, is being pushed into a situation from which it won't recover for years. And we don't know 
that there's adequate reason for it, but we do have reason to suspect that there's not, partly because it can't work, partly because the death figures may from COVID may be exaggerated. Mm. And, and, and that's the thing, Herman, isn't it? It's almost cloak and dagger approach of the state that's also beginning to erode people's trust in, 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 you know, even, in, even in their advice, right? Good advice at times also. Um, maybe to put that question on you, has this lockdown worked in your view? Well, the thing is, I, I have to be completely honest. It's, it's very easy um, to look back and try to be on the right side of every decision, every call. And I will own up to the fact that when the initial lockdown of three weeks was announced, I thought that was the prudent and right decision at that time. In retrospect, we might look back and see that, you know, uh, that we, we now understand more and that might have been the wrong decision then. But let's be fair to those in power and let's be fair to decision making saying you can only make the best decision on what you know at the time. But, and mm. here's the big but, but when the data starts changing, you have to change. You have a duty to change your mind mm. if the data changes. And Anthea has shown that in Kailicha, the, inf- the number of infections have increased from the start of the lockdown until relatively recently by more than 3,000%. Now, mm. if the lockdown was supposed to be working, then it was supposed to be stopping these kind of spikes. You would still see an increase, but you wouldn't see these bizarre numbers. And another thing that Anthea has uncovered in her research is the idea that the World Health Organization has put out instructions or protocols on how COVID deaths are to be treated to such an extent that in Italy there is a suspicion that 88% of deaths attributed to COVID were not, in fact, deaths from COVID, but deaths with COVID, with other comorbidities that would, under mm. normal circumstances, actually be the cause of death. Absolutely. And that's a big issue right now. In fact, it's playing out in, in, the, in the current media space with the premature baby that was born, um, who, who died, obviously, of those complications, as, as do premature babies uh, mostly do, or not, I shouldn't say mostly, but are higher risk of, rather, um, and but because the baby had happened to have COVID, the, you know the media have reported that it is COVID that killed her, uh, or the baby rather. Um, guys, I must take a quick break. Um, I will come back to this conversation afterwards, um, as we sort of have the last ten minutes of it. Uh, so, guys, if you're interested in this conversation and you're loving it, stay with us. Short ad break. I'll see you after this. Stay tuned for the Big Daddy Liberty Show on 101.9 High FM. Guys, welcome back to the Big Daddy Liberty Show. I am the Big Daddy Liberty. I'm in conversation at the moment with Dr. Anthea Jeffrey and Herman Pretorius from the Institute of Race Relations. They put out a very fantastic report, Keeping Liberty Alive um, Through COVID-19 and Beyond, where they interrogate some of the issues that um, have dominated the discourse around uh, not only COVID-19, but specifically government's fight against it, you know, its approach in particular of lockdowns and the suppression of certain rights and liberties, etc. Um, guys, as, as we have sort of like the last nine minutes of our chat, let, let, me, let me narrow the questions down a little bit and come to this issue of, you know, our freedoms, our rights, because we've seen a massive assault 
um, of them, especially under government's sort of shut up and obey type uh, approach, you know, the, the hard, uh, you know, backed by violence in most cases, with, you know, the specter of the army and police on our streets. Dr. Jeffrey, I must come to you because, you know, I think you, you, you lay it out lucidly in this report. And I'm going to ask the question um, just directly. Is our liberty under threat? Absolutely. Um, we have many guaranteed rights in our Bill of Rights, and many of those rights, and in fact the great majority of them, have been eroded to some extent and sometimes very greatly by the lockdown. And just to give some examples, the right to equality has been eroded. Some people are allowed to go to work, others are not. The right to human dignity has been eroded, particularly by requiring people to live in overcrowded shacks, not to get out of them for 24 hours a day at one point. Um, also, the right to pursue your trade and occupation, the right of movement, and the right to just administrative action, in terms of which officials are supposed to give you some sort of hearing before they take administrative decisions that limit your your rights to trade, etc., and that simply hasn't been done. So the derogations or the infringements of the guaranteed rights are very clear. Is this... Are those derogations justified? Are they, do they meet the criteria? Because our Bill of Rights does recognize that, that rights can't be absolute. There may be circumstances in which rights have to be limited. But there are also very clear criteria that any limitation of rights has to fulfill. And in particular, the limitation must be reasonable and justifiable in our democratic society. And in addition, it must be clear that there are no less restrictive means available to achieve the government's objective. And if we apply those tests to what's been done, I think it's very clear that it's not been reasonable and justifiable, particularly because the lockdown can't succeed in preventing the spread of infection and really reducing the death toll, which is the government's key objective. If anything, it's putting us at risk of many more non-COVID deaths, as we talked about. And are there not less restrictive means available? We believe that there clearly are. We know who the people are who are most vulnerable to the disease. 75 to 80% of those who, who contract the disease will be asymptomatic or have very mild symptoms. The people likely to be badly affected are the elderly or those with underlying health conditions. And that's a very much smaller proportion of people. So our aim should be to find effective ways to protect those people who are the most vulnerable and let the rest of the population get on with earning their livelihoods and taking care of their families. And the Institute's also come with a proposal as to how that can be achieved, particularly, say, for grandmothers who are living in, in an informal settlement and taking care of young children, can't easily uh, isolate in those circumstances we believe they should be given tax-funded self-isolation vouchers, that these should be made available, say, at empty hotels, so that the people who are vulnerable and can't shelter at home in any effective way should go there and would then, um, with the aid of a tax-funded voucher, be able to take care of themselves and take small children with them so that they can take care of those children too. And that would be far less devastating to the economy and the society than locking down 80%, 60% of the people who need to work. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And I, I, I mean, I love that intervention that you proposed. Um, Herman, and, uh, and I have five minutes, so I'm, 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 I'm going to put the question to you, Herman, but also I want to sort of um, 
to, in, in terms of some of the, the, the interventions, the proposals you guys put in this report, this is the sort of stuff that, you know, I, I always talk about on the show is, is very much part of fighting the, the, engaging the battle of ideas. Um, you know, a society at a point of crisis, it's he who injects the greatest volume of ideas um, that will win, that will sway that society, the idea of the battle of ideas. Do you have hope that we can win this particular battle of ideas? Yes, I do. The thing is, we the, that uh, voucher proposal that Anthea referred to, we did, we put that out before the lockdown even started, on the 25th of March. The lockdown started on the 26th, and we put out a comprehensive policy framework response to COVID-19 on the 25th of March, in which we listed these kind of ideas, these kind of policies. And, you know, the problem with being in a think tank and and trying to argue for liberty is liberty is so often, freedom is so often an abstract thing. If you want to talk to people about liberty, they often say, how will liberty get food on my table? And then it's a difficult question to answer. And it's a question that we, in favor of advocating for liberty, must be able to answer. But I think the lockdown, the suffering, the state's approach to shutting out the citizen in this decision-making process has really illustrated how tangible liberty is. Now is the time for South Africans to say, what have we lost? What is the one thing that we lost that made us lose our jobs, our businesses, our ability to see loved ones, our ability to give to the poor charitably, to look after the hungry? What's that one thing we lost? And that one thing is liberty. Am I hopeful? Yes. Because as you say, in a time of crisis, it is when priorities become clear and the importance of liberty has been so painfully illustrated with the suffering in our country that I'm very hopeful that coming out of this crisis, South Africans will look to the 27 constitutional rights they have in the Bill of Rights. They will look at liberty and say, I know now what life might be like without these things, and these things are worth fighting for. Absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah, I, I'm going to wrap up with you, and I'm going to give you the last sort of two, two three minutes. Um, and my apologies, guys, for the short time. It, it is radio. But, Anthony, you, you made an important point in, in the Keeping Liberty Alive report that also the, this lockdown is driven by ideology behind it. I know I'm opening up a massive topic in the last three minutes, um, but can you just quickly touch on it and why citizens need to be aware that the lockdown isn't everything that it's, it's, it's been posited to be at face value and why it's important, obviously, to fight back on it? Let me try and the time here. The, the ANC, SHCP Alliance has for decades, ever since the 1960s, if not earlier, been committed to implementing a national democratic revolution in South Africa, or an NDR. And the ultimate aim of that NDR is to cripple the capitalist economy so that the country can be pushed towards a socialist system instead. And ever since 1994, astonishingly, the government has actually been pursuing this idea. And it's what informs many of the policy decisions it has made. And I think when the pandemic arose, the government's choice to embark on a lockdown was also informed by this NDR ideology because it's given them vast control over the economy. No business can now function without its approval. And one fears that at the end of the day, given its ideological interest in crippling, in, sorry, in crippling the capitalist economy, it also has an interest 
of an ideological kind and, and driving us to the point where the government can more legitimately say capitalism has failed and now we and the state are going to take ownership and ever more control of key sectors of the economy and we will then direct it and it will all be much better than now, which of course is an enormously uh, false idea because the government hasn't even been able to, to, to run the electricity sector where it has a mon monopoly on a successful yeah. way. But I think we, we see the underlying thought, particularly in what the EFF said right at the start of this lockdown, that if the economy is sufficiently damaged, there will be no tax revenue left or too little to meet the government's needs. But the government will still need income. So its solution at that time will be to take ownership and control of all the key sectors of the economy to allow the private sector simply to have some kind of stake in areas which are less strategic. And that will bring us very close to what the NDR goal has always been. So I'm afraid one must be concerned as well that the lockdown decisions are being driven by ideology and not simply by the practical needs of fighting against the virus. Absolutely. Um, wow. Guys, thank you very much. I, I know we, time always flies by in these sort of conversations, but I must thank the both of you, Dr. Anthony Jeffrey and Herman Pretorius are from the Institute of Race Relations. Before I maybe let you go, um, Herman, how do people find this report uh, online and how do they maybe find you on social media if you're active? Yes, uh, go onto the IRR website. It's irr.org.za. There's a, a tab that you can click on that says report. And all our reports are listed there for reading the solutions that our country needs. We are on Facebook as the Institute of Race Relations. Go like our page there. We are on Twitter as the IRR underscore uh, South Africa. And we also have the publication of the Daily Friend, which is our attempt to make sure that the voice of liberty is not just for those interested in research and report, but that the real narrative of what's going on in this country is accessible to everyday people who have better things to worry about, like their kids and their jobs. Go read The Daily Friend, go like The Daily Friend, subscribe to it, help us win this battle of ideas. Excellent. And uh, thank you very much to you and to you, Herman. After the break, uh, as I wrap up, I'm going to look at who the Moomish of the Week is. And boy, oh boy, does he not deserve that title. You are listening to The Big Daddy Liberty Show. Oh, excuse me. All right, guys. So last um, two minutes, three minutes or so of the show. But uh, two things I want to quickly do here. Number one, what should we be looking out for in the news week to come? Um, let me begin where it's been rather interesting developments. Uh, SA Express, one of the big, bulky uh, state-owned enterprises, recently literally sent a letter to its employees saying, do not come back to work once this lockdown thing is over, because the business, of course, has now been liquidated. Um, and it begs the question, are we going to see more state-owned enterprises, which were already on the brink, by the way, collapsing um, under the weight of, uh, you know, being broke and bankrupt? And does COVID literally facilitate that? So that's something to watch. And, of course, uh, keep an eye on the court cases that are being waged um, on the the... Uh, on, on, on the state. I mean, the DA just recently won its case 
um, against the rule, the, the lockdown rule that, you know, charity cannot be passed by anybody other than the state, or that all charity must go through the state. So they won that. Um, and obviously there are other court cases from organizations like the IRR and um, DSA, etc., etc. Guys, my moment of the week, um, the, 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 the loser of the week, has to go to Peggy Taylor, the Minister of Police, as I like to call him Dick Tracy because he dresses like a 1920s gangster. Um, I mean, what a moment to be busted visiting your, your a fellow minister's house when he knew that minister was in Pretoria and not at his place in Peter Marsburg. So he gets Mumish of the Week. And on that note, let me say goodbye, and um, I will see you next week, Friday, on the show. Remember to follow me on social media. Look for Big Daddy Liberty and the Big Daddy Liberty Show on Facebook, uh, Twitter, and Instagram. And, of course, the show itself on YouTube. Um, guys, thank you so much, and, yeah, uh, Shabbat Shalom to everybody. I will see you guys next week on the BDL Show.